So anyway, my goal is to get all of us together in real life um, for some kind of outdoor experience because Will has told us that his kitchen is is closed to to guests right now. But he has all kinds of fancy culinary toys. I was hoping we could watch Will spatchcock a chicken. <laughs> well, I, look, I can do that anywhere. I can do that on the. I, I spatchcock left and right. I'm I'm on uh, on, on the street. In fact, you can. You're a street. I like this vibe. Yeah, street spatchcocker. <laughs> yeah, uh, street side spatchcocking is a specialty. Welcome to Transpose, a podcast. In every episode, industry visionaries bring their unique talents and insights into the transformation zone and transpose the ethos of an iconic brand, product, or experience into another market. Thought leaders, innovators, and creatives traveled far into the future, unleashing disruption, and a little humor along the way. Welcome to Transpose. I'm Justin Dobb, and with me, as always, is my co-host and fellow innovator, technologist, and futurist, Anju Ahuja. On this episode, we have a cavalcade of guests talking all things metaverse, which means, of course, we virtually lose control of the entire show. Stay tuned. So we're going to kick things off with a couple of quick one-liner intros, and if I forget something really important you want to say about yourself, just shout it out. Um, returning as a guest to our show, Sean Layden, gaming guru, former chairman of Sony Interactive Entertainment Worldwide Studios, advisor to Streamline Media Group, doing a bunch of other important things that, Sean, you can expand upon. Well, I, well, first, I just want to say that officially makes you, Sean, the record holder for <laughs> For the number of guest appearances on our podcast. Our returning Jeopardy champion. Well, well, thank you, Anju, and thank you, Justin, and, and hello, Stephanie, and hello, Will. Um, as Anju said, I'm a, I'm a uh, graduate from the, the University of Sony, having spent 32 years there, and, and finally uh, getting, my, uh, getting my graduation underway, and I've been out in the free world since then, uh, working largely with uh, other media groups, other startups. Um, I've got a couple of nonprofits I want to plug, Girls Make Games and Women Who Code, and we can talk more about that later. Um, but I'm really interested in spending this next chapter of my career finding ways to get more people not just into enjoying games, but into creating games. I think there's a real talent drought in the game development community, and um, we need to find new ways to bring new, new voices and new people in there, or else we'll all end up just playing Fortnite for the rest of our lives. That's really good philosophical context for today's discussion. So thanks for adding that in. Indeed. All right. I will be happy to introduce Will Smith. Not that Will Smith. Uh, save your anger for the slap. Um, he's the former editor of Maximum PC Magazine. He's the founder of Tested.com and FuVR. And now he's working in the gaming industry for Stray Bombay. And as I mentioned, fielding misdirected tweets nearly full time. Welcome, Will. <laughs> Thanks, Justin. Uh, yeah, and, and then I also do a podcast of my own uh, called Brad and Will Made a Tech Pod with one of my dear friends where we talk about uh, single topic tech issues every week from everything from like building a why, why you might want a home uh, network attached storage box all the way up to what, what the new Wi-Fi is and whether you need to upgrade your existing hardware and stuff like that. Yeah, it's on my weekly rotation, Will. So, Oh, thank you, Justin. Me too. Thanks, Andrew. 
All right. And Stephanie Lamas, XR champion, formerly of Superdata. Stephanie, I want to say you might have been a co-founder, and if not, you were a very early employee. Um, Superdata, for those of you that don't know, was a gaming research powerhouse. It's now part of Nielsen, where she also spent some time and toured the world talking about all things XR. And now she's at World Economic Forum, like I mentioned, working on a top secret project that she will unveil at Davos. Stephanie, what would you like to tell us about yourself? Oh, well, I'm really honored to be here with such great company. Um, I, you know, have been in XR for what feels like a long time for me, but I think in the grand scheme of things, maybe isn't that long. So about um, 10 years, maybe a little more. And um, I'm just, you know, I have a background in research, but lately I've been doing a lot more on the ground kind of work, being able to talk to people directly about what they want to do in the metaverse and their impact and that sort of thing. And I think that's just been super super exciting. Um, I'm, I'm an XR nerd at heart, but I am also very interested in Web3 and the metaverse. So, um, And then my roots are in games. Uh, so it's great to be with this group of people. So we love nerds. And before we nerd out on the topic of the metaverse and all crazy things related to it, uh, Justin and I put together a list of words that we think describe the three of you. So are you guys ready for your words? Yeah. Bring it on. Okay. Unbounded, skeptical, scrutinizing, especially about emerging technologies and its application, mindful, endlessly curious, and you're also curious conversationalist, which is fun too, generous, creative, and fun. I like it. What a relief. I thought the first word was unbalanced. Well, that, that only applied to you, Sean. We said it applies to all three. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <Phew. laughs> <laughs> All right. So I know we only have you on for a short while. So we should start. Like We've only got very, about very three beginning. and a half hours worth of questions. So <laughs> <laughs> to start, you know, maybe we need to talk about what you each think the metaverse is and, and how you would describe it to a layperson or what do you think it will be? Oh, that's fun. <laughs> I, I, I mean, so I'm old, right? So I read, I read uh, Snow Crash when it, when it came out 25 years ago and it was like, oh, well, this is a horrible dystopia, but it also sounds kind of cool. And, and you know, sword fighting is neat. So, yeah, why, why not? Maybe one day we'll have goggles. And then I think I won a pair of shutter glasses at a LAN party someplace playing Quake or, or something and, and realized that we were a long way from anything that actually felt like an inner, you know... It, the, the thing the thing to me is I read Snow Crash and I thought, oh, hey, here's a platform for people to connect 3D spaces that that are kind of are interconnected and not at all related to each other, almost like a like a mud or a moo or something like that, but that was graphical. And and that was the context in which I, I was thinking about Metaverse for the last 20, 25 years. And uh, that's shifted a, a little bit, I think, in the in the popular dynamic over the last couple of years. But but that, I mean, that's what I think. I think it's an open open protocol where you can connect and, and interact in in a three D kind of shared space. But only if you are a legless cartoon avatar, if we are to believe Meta. <laughs> well, I, I mean, look, imagine VR chat, but maybe just a little tiny bit more polished and even more infringy is what I'm thinking. Stephanie, what do you think it looks like? I think. I mean, we're not there yet, obviously, but what I would have said maybe two weeks ago would have been different than two months ago, than, you know, whatever. Like, it, it changes every time I talk to new people, and I am wary to define something that we don't 
fully understand yet um, in the sea of corporate uh, definitions that we have been seeing. So, you know, I think it's something that will be transformative. I think it'll expand interconnectivity in a way that we couldn't have imagined. It will be social. It will be economic uh, driven and it will not be, you know, in real life necessarily like face to face. Uh, but what that all means, I, you know, it's impossible for me to anticipate what that will look like in the next five, 10, 50 years. I think you bring up a really interesting point. So much of the general public perception is largely shaped by the PR narratives of the players that are trying to sort of sculpt it in, in our minds. And I think that's too bad because it probably limits what people's potential could be in, in creating the experiences and the capabilities, you know, outside of whatever those narratives are. You know, when I come across the, when I come across the term metaverse, I, I just see it as another, you know, another attempt by human beings to find a word to describe their current reality. And that we're just scrambling around for, for, for terminology that we can either help us to understand it or maybe market it and put it on a t-shirt. So I hear <laughs> metaverse, I think the amazing world of multimedia, and then I think, oh, yeah, remember cyberspace was a thing? Oh, and before that, it was the information superhighway. <laughs> We've been going through the last 20, 30 years trying to come up with phraseology to describe the constant inexorable evolution of technology and how it becomes more persistent and more insidious in some ways in our life. And now we've decided we'll call this metaverse, which means anything and everything all the time, um, and try to get a handle of that. I think we're already in it. It's not something that's coming. It's something that we're 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 going through at a certain velocity. Sometimes it picks up. Sometimes it slows down. But you know, if we say metaverse is a way of connecting people over great distances when they can't see each other, that's called a long distance phone call, and we've had that for some time. So going from the long distance phone call where you could you know dial direct, not have to go through an operator, so I could actually call somebody in London you know, from my house, that was like the beginning of metaverse where we started connecting in that way. And it's just gone on since then over time. And this is our latest clunky terminology to try to put a word to it. Um, but um, I think it goes in every direction and, and, and it's going to happen. It is happening. And um, we just have to, uh, we just have to surrender ourselves to our metaverse overlords. <laughs> So if we're differentiating from the previous generation, which is when we shifted from open web to this app-based ecosystem where everything's in their own kind of little silos and protected by our, our overlords at Apple and Google, depending on which platform you, you buy into, you know, the, the thing about metaverse to me that should be the key guiding light, and I think probably Mark Zuckerberg and, and some of the folks working on, on commercializing the metaverse before it exists it, it, are is that it should be interoperable, right? Like I should be able to hop into Fortnite mm -hmm. and jump into Facebook's thing and jump into a thing that I run on my own server and jump into Stephanie's thing that she's going to announce at Davos or whatever. And, 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 and like that kind of cross pollination is the thing that we all realized we made the mistake on with apps mm -hmm. in the last, in the last wave of this, the post web two phase. And, and I think that's the thing that, that like I want to see change personally. So that reminds me that you need a central bank though, in that, kind of idea, right? If you want your metaverse belongings to track you and follow you between these different... Do um, you? Do you need a central I, I, bank I don't or do know. you need it's, protocols? Well, fair enough. If it's not a... But it's so... you Yes, agreed. So whether that's blockchain or something like yeah. that. But the point is that they all have to adhere to something. Right. 
I mean, that was the miracle of long distance phone calls, right? That you can make a call halfway around the planet and all these different countries' systems abide by the same protocols, the same way that you can attach to an IP address 20,000 miles away directly from your computer. But so it can be done, but it does take a lot of lifting. I like how you guys went with this because I really have to pull back at times and try to say it's not a destination. When I'm talking to people, it is something closer to protocols or it's a way of communicating or it's a way of enabling experiences that are interconnected in different ways, but it's not really a place. And so I find all these conversations about buying up property in the metaverse to be hugely distracting. Mm-hmm. Am I the only one that feels that way? No, you're not. I mean, at least on my part. Like, I think the frustration that I have, too, is that there needs to be this hyper-defined, you know, understanding of what exactly the metaverse is. And therefore, we're going to build a metaverse now that fits into this, you know, neat little package. And that's going to have property. And you're going to go in there and it's going to be like Second Life and and all of those sorts of things. And I think it's it is distracting in that it really doesn't allow the metaverse to come into its own, you know, earlier. Like it, we're going to have to fight off misconception. We're going to have to like, I think the way that it's proposed to people who aren't like us, who aren't sitting here and waxing poetic about it or thinking about it all the time, you know, whether it's my grandmother or my neighbor or whoever that doesn't work in VR games, metaverse, whatever, um, you have this real challenge in that you're kind of like presenting this idea in a very specific, very concrete way and saying, look, you know, you have all of the things you have in real life. Now you can do in the metaverse and (laughs) this is going to be the future. And if you don't participate right now, then you're going to be left behind and the housing market is going to be booming and you're going to not be able to afford your place there. And it's very like strangely black mirror in a way, like it really doesn't need to be. Cause it's not like, it, it's a, like, you know, like we we're talking about, like it's protocols. It's even, you know, thinking about it as, as like a point in time in communication um, as opposed to, like you said, a destination. Like it's just, it's an evolution of what we already do um, in new ways, the way that we've built upon those things in the past through web 2.0 and now web 3.0 and whatever, you know, whatever. So that's my very long-winded way of saying, Anju, you're 100% correct. <laughs> Thank you. I feel better. Um, there are some other things that I'm tortured about related to the metaverse, but we can get to those later. Is it fair to say, based on how you're describing this, that really the metaverse is leveraging a lot of web 3.0 capabilities, going further out on the XR spectrum and overlay to our natural existence, but not sort of this hold off thing that people sort of liken to the ready player one. From where I sit, the web three stuff is distinct. I mean, I, I, the, the web, the, the blockchain slash NFT slash whatever people are talking, you know, DAOs, whatever people are talking Mm -hmm. about this week is, is a technology in search, search of a solution in a lot of cases. Like there's, there's interesting stuff happening in the art world where people are, where artists are seeing the, uh, you know, seeing recuperation of profits that previously went to middle, you know, uh, galleries and and people that kind of lived in the middle of the art world chain. And and I think that's that's really interesting. But for for digital property ownership, we're already seeing problems. The problems that come with having no central authority, right? If if the person who writes your 
your contract for your you know your smart contract for your, on the Ethereum blockchain messes something up, then you can lose literally millions and millions of dollars of value. Uh, because because somebody did a had a math error in their in their contract and 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 there's no once it's in the blockchain and once that's written then then that's done it's it's not a viable solution for normal people for kind of the digital property ownership it, I guess we're trying to build scarcity into a place that we don't necessarily need to have scarcity for for these communications networks to work and and, and applying it like, like it, we're just seeing the the blockchain people glom onto a thing that also has some lift so that they can avoid the scary part of the hype cycle uh mm-hmm. you know with, with with their with their emerging technology so justin you have a lot of opinions on this based on our conversation yesterday about scarcity and you know the privileged few that participate in blockchain and crypto so i guess my my question was as we watched theoretically cryptocurrencies and blockchain were supposed to democratize finance but obviously that hasn't happened if you look at who owns the bulk of cryptocurrencies right now. It's even a smaller subset of the small subset of people who have the cash in the real currencies. You know, we've seen that anytime we have these new things, it's a land grab by people who have the resources to risk in the first place. So the question is, if you're going to turn these kind of, I have trouble disassociating it from you know, virtual physical experience in the way that it's been sold. So I'm, uh, I, I guess I'm not buying into this concept is only, you know, the next, um, abstracted collection of communication technologies. I think that people are selling a very specific vision of what it is. And to have commerce in that vision of what it is, you have to somehow create some false sense of scarcity. And that right now that looks like NFTs and and blockchain. Um, And I just, you know, can see that, you know, whatever digital divide we have now will only be, you know, exacerbated by this, by yet another layer thrown on top. So, Let's take a romantic view for a minute. What are your favorite use cases that you see evolving in this whatever version of the metaverse? And who do you think the early adopters are going to be? I know everyone thinks it's going to be gamers, and I love that gamers are probably going to be part of it. But do you see sort of the mix shifting? I I mean, I think a lot of the XR technologies traditionally have been uh, embraced by gamers first because they have the hardware to run it before... Mm -hmm before the rest the before the normal people right um you know we saw that with vr for sure because if you had a gaming pc you already had the expensive part of a vr setup uh five years ago mm-hmm. I, I i don't know um i i don't a lot of the current description of the metaverse the stuff that we see out of facebook especially feels like again technology in search of an audience you know i don't know anybody yep. who wants to bop around with a fisher price style avatar and hands <laughs> floating in space instead of sitting in his like nobody likes sitting in zoom but i don't think anybody thinks that 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 their vision is better for shared communication spaces um i i think if you look at what's happening with vr chat i think it's actually the interesting thing right there's people that are uploading their own avatars they're having their own sense of self it's a lot of ip infringement there's a lot of weird <laughs> and weirdly animated spider-man in there um but it's it's people building almost these you know, Minecraft or Roblox like experiences that live inside their individual rooms and they're getting people to hook them up to other parts of the world and they're sharing codes and they're, they're building their own experiences on top of this like semi open platform. You make it sound like, um, you know, I, I think I heard you talk about this on, on your podcast, MUDS, right? Um, yeah. 
Um, yeah. So do people know what MUDs are anymore? I mean, I feel like that's... I don't think so. I think you should tell them. <laughs> so so uh, MUDs were multi-user dungeons and they were basically multiplayer text adventures like Zork. So, you know, you 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 start in a, in a pane with a, with a chat window and it says, hey, you're in a room. There are 35 people in here. There's... Uh, you look around and you see a four doors and a lantern and something else. And uh, they started out as something that the admins had to run. So you you would write some code in the back end, you'd post it on a server someplace, and it would run in a terminal client, a, a, like a telnet client. Uh, eventually, people made them user extensible. So you could write code inside the, inside the MUD that would then let you build your own rooms. And all you had to do to hook it into the larger network was convince somebody to you know, make, make it. So if you reached out and grabbed the lantern that was in the first room, it would teleport you into, from, from the starting room into their room. And you ended up with these enormous webs of connected, you know, text-based rooms again, built by the users. And and I think that that's the metaphor that is the most interesting for me about this as a communications medium. Uh, and, and there is a land grab aspect, right, Justin? Because you have yeah. like the closer you are to the root of the of the moo, the the better your the more traffic your area is likely to see. It, it was like being listed on Yahoo in 1995, right? <laughs> I do like the potential for user-generated content. I, I think that's sort of new and unique, unless this ends up evolving like a bunch of tentpole film making four or five studios around the world that control all the content. I, I think there's some real possibility for creators to unleash all kinds of interesting stuff. Am I romanticizing that possibility? Do you guys think that's possible? Well, it's interesting how it, you can trace this back to MUDs and those kind of, you know, the BBS community that moved into a MUD community that moved on to other things. It's, there's an interesting thread, though, between MUDs and the dystopian cyberpunkiness of the metaverse framing, whether it's Neuromancer or whether it's Snow Crash. It's, it's always, we want to go to this metaverse because our real reality sucks. <laughs> and <laughs> we want to go here with these people in this dungeon because my life sucks or I can't attach in, 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 in other ways or want to also attach in this way. So there's just something kind of dark about it in my, in my sense of it. I don't see a lot of unicorns and sunflowers you think dark in the per in the way it's portrayed or dark in its uh, in, in its very nature i guess in the way it's portrayed or in the people are, are, are drawn to that it's something we see in gaming all the time you know most of our games are somewhat edgy somewhat dark somewhat violent and uh i'm looking at the all the talk about metaverse and of course the one thing we have to remember about metaverse is like once a trend gets on the cover of time magazine it's like over so <laughs> you know, keep that in mind <laughs> But whether it's metaverse or these other things we've been talking about all around the edges, talking about the land grab as well, it does seem fueled by FOMO, just like NFTs and crypto. It's, it's the FOMO thing. It's like, I don't want to miss out. Something may be happening here. And that drives a lot of energy towards, I don't know if it's necessarily in a good way. Yeah, I'm, I'm still kind of a skeptic insofar as can we control this evolution? I don't think so. I think it's just a natural course of time going through here and people will find advantages and take opportunities, but I don't think there's any way to overwatch the whole thing. We've seen this idea play out multiple times before, right? So we, you know, whether you think about the kind of multiverse that was AOL chat rooms, <laughs> you know, where people could right. be anybody they wanted, um, or, uh, you know, I don't know if everyone here remembers, I think it still exists, but Second Life, right? Linden Labs um, mm -hmm. created, you know, uh, and, and none of these things really had, while they had some um, cultural um, awareness, they, they were really still, you know, nothing more than a group of people, uh, you know, with a, or a, I should say a product with a niche following. Why, why do we think today will be any different? 
I, I don't know that I think it will be any different, right? I think mm. that this is going to be the superset of the web, right? Yeah, you know, we're we're at 1993 with the endless the endless fall um, with with metaverse, probably even before that. At this point, you know, think about what the web was like in the 90s before brands got involved and Google started targeting ads at people, and um, you know, it was a it was a collection of weirdos with computers who were into the Simpsons and star Wars and star Mm -hmm. Trek and the white guy monoculture of the late nineties was the language of the internet for most people. And and then computers got cheaper and internet access got more readily available and broadband kind of took off in the early two thousands and, and it all changed. I I think we're going to see the same path. I I don't think we're going to see the same, the same exact arc, but I think we're going to see a similar path with whatever the XR world ends up making. This is all, I think, under the assumption that XR is definitively going to be a driver for the metaverse. And, like, it will be a driver. That's true. But I'm curious with you all if I can ask my own questions. What do you see the role of non-VR being as vehicles into the metaverse? Slash, do you see a role for, like, smartphones and computers to be uh, sort of harmoniously working in tandem with people in XR experiencing, you know, the the full-fledged metaverse. I think it's more likely. There's an interesting school of thought that, you know, you know, everyone's waiting for Apple to come out with some kind of, you know, uh, AR glasses or some VR headset, but um, it's probably as likely that they're going to increasingly use um, AirPods, right? And there'll be an audio metaverse, right? And with location awareness connected to your phone, um, that there will be this kind of uh, auditory layer over the world as you're walking through it. And so I, I, I do think it's going to be um, something other than donning a, you know, full haptic suit and a, and a VR headset. Personally, I, I get uncomfortable in something like that for a long period of time. So I think if this is going to be a viable game changer, it, it has to be something that does have tentacles into all the different kinds of ways that we connect with digital information. It's hard for me to imagine a form factor that would displace the mobile phone, but I know that's going to come about eventually, right? Because that's just how evolution and innovation works. I think really far out, I see a world with light fields and I don't see a world with glasses really far out. I just don't think that works. Or, you know, maybe you have contact lenses, but I still think that that's a big imposition on the average user. I think when we want to interact with content, we want to do it on our own terms. And so I I think a lot of these things create a barrier in the experience. Um, But that's just me. I I mean, I do hope that there's a future with light fields because I think that that's a much fairer representation of what people are trying to create. But it'll take a long time before you'll have networks that can deliver that. Yeah, it's a great conundrum around the VR experience. I did a lot of work with PlayStation VR before it came out and, and launched it with the company. Is that on the one hand, it expands your horizons by isolating you in a headset. (laughs) (laughs) yep so you're going to all these great amazing worlds but you don't know what's happening in your physical reality around you at that time and so it becomes unsettling in that moment when you have that self-awareness like oh my god am i alone and uh if the idea is that it requires that sort of hardware interface like a headset or even a pair of glasses that itself will be delimiting if that's the only way we're defining metaverse i feel like getting inside a headset or getting on the other side of one is like going into a decompression chamber like you are isolated, you get this experience psychologically of being completely detached, but it doesn't necessarily make me more involved with what I'm doing on the other side. It's just, it's a bit of a scene shift and it triggers sort of mm. a sense of I've escaped a reality for a little while, but then I'm going to go back to a different reality. 
I don't know if the metaverse is really that promise. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, like being in VR is so disorienting in terms of like coming back into the real world that you have to be in a very specific mindset to be like, okay, I'm going to shut this all off and then be in this immersed environment and live this alternative life and then come back in and function normally like I did before I had the headset on. Like doing that now, if you're going to jump in for Beat Saber is one thing, but doing that when you're trying to do business or whatever, you know, you end up doing in the so-called metaverse feels like you can't, it would be hard for me to juggle what real life and immersive life are if they were so intertwined and so reflective of each other with a headset. Like, I just think it would be a little, you know, it's one thing to do a headset for this or that or whatever, but to, to experience the metaverse a hundred percent in this occluded alternative universe sounds exhausting and sounds just super disorienting. To me, it, 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 there's a there's a sense of vertigo, you know, having worked in VR for a long time and, and wearing goggles for three or four hours a day. Uh, w- when you take off the headset, there's a moment of vertigo. And, and I think there's a desire now to get the highest fidelity, especially for people our age, to get the highest fidelity version of everything. You know, we, we get the 4K Ultra HD disc and watch the movie on our giant 70-inch TV. I think we'll see different stages. So you, you can you can use your phone as a window, right? But when you want to take the call with somebody, if Anju calls and I want to have a chat with her, then I might put on my 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 fancy Apple glasses or whatever for the higher fidelity moment uh, version of that communication, and then take them off when I'm done and go back to to living in the in the normal in the normal meat world. Uh, we, we see that now with things like Rec Room and and VR Chat. You can you can access both of those on your phone. Yep. But you don't get the full, fully animated avatar, and you don't get the yeah. full immerse, immersive experience. You just get the kind of the JV uh, version of those of those experiences. Has anyone used the kind of virtual PC in in VR? Mm-hmm. Tell me about that because it strikes me as a why would I, I don't know why I would want to do that. Well, so um, big screen is the one that I've spent the most time with. It's a basically it's, you you put on the headset and you have a environment around. You can choose what environment it is. It can look like a theater. It can look like an office. It can look like a big, you know, uh, an empty holodeck type environment. The interesting thing about it is you can map each window into space in the world, and you can turn your avatar's perspective to see the different windows. So basically, you're saying, "Hey, I want to turn the entire world around me into Windows desktop, so you you can just have <laughs> access to an infinite number of flat flat windows." Oh God, shoot me now! That's a dystopia right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for Sean to throw up all over that. <laughs> but you don't have, have five, five, you don't have five monitors around you, Sean. So you have a giant <laughs> grid of day trader set up around you, or whatever. I'm talking to Atari 400. <laughs> <laughs> so, Justin, you're one of the few people that I know that actually substituted a real life activity yeah. for a VR activity with your workouts. Like, weren't you doing boxing as your morning workout regularly? I, I was before I started working at a startup, and now I, I work all the time. But yes, uh, during uh, lockdown, I started doing a uh, uh, Creed Rise to Glory every morning for a half hour and beating uh, the heck out of uh, Mr. T and uh, and Dolph Lundgren. So. Um, yeah, no, it was, I actually thought it was great. It was great exercise. Um, and, but it was pretty limited and it had its moment and, you know, it's about 20, 25 minutes of cardio and then done. I, I never felt the need to go socialize, so to speak. So Justin got me into doing this too. And I 
I learned something about myself. One, I kept punching the wall because I apparently do not respect the guard. I just will not respect it. <laughs> Nothing will keep me contained. Um, but but it was it was stimulating in a in a weirdly. I, I didn't find it to be a great cardio workout, but it was stimulating mentally because it kind of required me to be agile in a different way. And I thought that was interesting about it. And I think when you are in VR, you do get the chance to ping different parts of your sort of psychological spectrum than, you know, when we're interacting with like flat content, like video, or when we're interacting in the real world with things that we're already familiar with mentally, like we have mental models for the objects around us. I think the neat thing about being in VR is you don't necessarily have a mental model for what that experience is supposed to be like. I do think that's going to evolve over time too, though. There's a neat thing that you can do where you can give people's brains completely novel stimuli in VR. Um, and, and it's a, it's a great power, great responsibility situation, right? Because mm-hmm. you can make people throw up immediately if you, if you, if the developer decides, <laughs> but you can also make them see something that they've never experienced before. And, and, and that gives a certain type of person a real, real strong dopamine hit, which is, which is again, like a, a dangerous, but if used wisely and res- responsibly, a good thing. Yeah, I felt that way about ziplining. I'm never doing that in real life, but I, I found the videos or the experiences in VR thrilling, just doing it. And it did, it did give me a rush. It was like a cup of coffee, but more interesting. Well, I, I have to say um, there there are moments. So I don't know if you've all done uh, Richie's plank experience where you, in VR, you take an elevator up, I don't know, 30 floors or so, and then walk out on a wooden plank. Um, knowing full well uh, that I was still on the, you know, the carpet in my living room. Uh, the first time I did it, it was my brain was telling me to uh, get off the plank and get back into the elevator, um, like very seriously. It is, it is weird that way because we made a VR experience based on that famous 1970s event where the guy walked a wire between the two oh, yeah. world yeah. trade center. I was powers. just going to mention that. Yeah. And, and we made that and, uh, we had a piece of tape on the carpet with a little wire underneath it. So we, when you walked on it, it felt like you were on a wire, but you knew you were in the carpet. You knew you were in the conference room. But when you put the headset on, almost everybody fell over halfway over. They really felt <laughs> that they couldn't maintain their balance. And again, that's just because VR messes with your head and it'll make you see and think things that, you, that aren't necessarily true. So, so this is, now we're going to get to one of the things that tortures me when I think about the future of the metaverse and, and you know, within VR, but you know, also in other ways of experiencing metaversey things. If we know that much of what's going to happen in the future is driven by AI, and let's say I have a morbid curiosity about subject A, and I go sample it for like a second, but then I'm done with it. But this AI starts to think, this you know these algorithms start to learn things about me, and then they keep feeding me experiences that effectively are kind of torturing me. Like I'm harassed in this world by a bunch of algorithms that I can't control because I'm not generating the content. Who do I go? to say, turn it off or make it stop or reset. I mean, how do you, do you guys ever think about stuff like this? All the time. I mean, that's really kind of <laughs> the current, the current technology is really a surveillance technology that we have. That's web 2.0, what we're living in today. And that's why people are bringing up the issues about privacy. That's why the EU put out this great edict a few years ago about the, the right to be forgotten yep. and that companies have to support that, which is almost impossible. We all know that, but you're right. You're getting into these algorithms that you can't control. If you've had one lazy afternoon on Instagram, looking at stuff that really wasn't your interest, but you did it anyway, you'll be seeing that in your feed for the rest of your life. Yeah. I think a lot of us looking at the metaverse, so the metaverse just means Facebook is going to know more about me and the government's going to know more about me. And they're going to know where I am and where to find me all the time. That's a bit unsettling. They already know that, Sean. 
<laughs> They're listening right now. I know. That's why I've locked the door. <laughs> <laughs> you bring a, a point like that, you know, when we look at the just current social media, um, which is obviously, you know, kind of machine learning driven from a content side, um, it's basically created a, a lack of consensus reality, right? So we've got, you know, even just go politics, right? People yeah. are seeing different things and they're seeing different media streams. Um, that kind of terrifies me a little bit about the metaverse, right? So um, it, that it'll be more acute, right? So and in and, and real time. So you can have two people in the same, you know, metaverse room witnessing entirely different experiences driven by either the, the AI that's creating the content or someone on, on purpose um, showing them something different. And they walk away from that experience with radically different perceptions of what they just experienced. Um, uh, that terrifies me, actually. Consensus reality is the problem we have now, and it's, I think it's only going to be worse. Well, I think if you couple that with the psychological elements that come with immersion, the potential to be traumatized by content is probably greater in a metaverse or, you know, that kind of a world versus, you know, looking at your Instagram feed. But look at teenagers now. I mean, look at the distress they experience from what happens in their social media lives. I mean, I think something that's a, a big challenge for the metaverse that we haven't resolved in the real world in any way is the way that different people are treated um, based on who they are. But it's even worse in a metaverse where there's an anonymity and there's, uh, you know, the ability to go into someone's physical space and not physically be removed. And so representation in the metaverse or in VR is a real challenge when you are a person of color, when you are LGBTQ, when you are a, a woman who doesn't want to invite certain experiences. And so the trauma that you kind of mentioned, like there's so much danger that's similar or worse than what we could have in the real world because there are less limitations. And sure, we can throw like a bubble around people or mute people, but it doesn't necessarily solve the problem. Like this is a deep rooted issue that is gonna be very difficult to understand and solve because we can't seem to solve it. <laughs> Definitely not in the gaming world. Um, you know, so if you wanna feel free to represent yourself as who you are or who you want to, you know, show yourself to be in front of other people in XR, there is this, this real trauma that can come with it when you are being uh, treated a certain way because other people view you in a way that they feel they have the right to treat you uh, that way. So the fact that we're building a universe and not really able to address these issues that we have in real life where you can physically kind of set boundaries um, or you can have other people intervene uh, is is kind of concerning uh, when looking at something like XR or the metaverse. So is that the flip side to the question of whether this should be corporate controlled or not, right? So if it's a, if there's, there's no kind of central governance, then, you know, it's even scarier, so to speak, Every, everywhere's a bad neighborhood. But it, um, you know, uh, assuming these corporations would be good actors. Um, well, big assumption. In, in the yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I agreed, agreed. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a question about like the harmony between centralization and decentralization. And I don't think we know where that harmony is or who should have the keys to centralization. Where does regulation play a role in this? Does it play a role in this? Well, is well, there any governance? 
Exactly. I mean, there is none, right? Like that's a, right now we have zero metaverse governance. Uh, and so you have a lot of companies kind of playing in this playground, building things, inviting you in without they themselves understanding how should they be working together to moderate or to build safer environments. So, you know, yeah, absolutely. Like there, there, I personally believe there needs to be a balance. There's no way that we can have complete decentralization and have a safe environment, but in the reverse, there's no way to have a centralized environment that is completely safe to everybody, whether it's their data or privacy or what have you. So safety is somewhere in the middle, but I don't know that we know where that is. I mean, the beautiful thing about the web is that anybody can put up a server and through the magic of HTTP and HTTPS, you can connect, anybody else can connect to it if they know where it is. I mean, I think that's where we start, right? Is we start with these small disconnected areas where everybody controls their own room and people who respect each other's views and 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 uh, autonomy set up the rules in their rooms and then there's there's other rooms you know it's it's like the or it's like early usenet and early irc where there's a wild west contingent and then there's a more regulated uh, i don't want to say civilized but you know a, a, a more community type engagement uh it's but it, but it's a challenge and there's going to be these are hard problems and they're made harder by the embodiment of your person as a as an avatar in in these spaces, as as Stephanie said, you know what reminded me when you were talking, uh, Will was, uh, and this may be my dystopian side coming out, <laughs> but I, I was thinking about all of the corporate houses that uh, would surround South by Southwest Interactive, right? There'd be the um, fast company house and all that, you know, <laughs> everyone creating their rooms that you had to. To, to jump between to get the full experience. Um, and I, I just wonder if that's what we're looking at ultimately, right? If, if um, in this, in this neighborhood of the metaverse, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird, it's a weird idea, right? Are we going to have these corporate bubbles where everybody engages and, and you bounce from the KFC super happy 11 herbs and spices zone over to the, to the Popeye's Cajun Emporium or, or, uh, like, like, what is what is the metaphor for this? And this is this is this is this is why you know you're so. This is so early. It's because these places don't exist yet, right? Yeah, yeah. But like, th- usually there's a market at the at the beginning stages of any new kind of core technology. There's this thing that happens where ad agencies hire a couple of nerds that know how to build these things, and then they start charging brands exorbitant amounts of money, so that when the CEO says, "Hey, what's our metaverse strategy?" then KFC's CTO can say, look, we got the KFC metaverse zone happening over here, but they don't even know where to spend that money yet. So, so like we're still on the uptrend, I think for the, if if we're Gartner hype cycling. So, So, okay. Yeah. I totally agree with that. We are in the uptrend of the hype cycle, by the way. And um, I'm glad you pointed that out because it's, it's kind of crazy how frenetic the conversation is about this right now, but over the long run, as you see the value chain shaping up, give me the best and worst of who you think captures the bulk of the value in this new set of metaverse-like experiences. And how? I mean, mean, for me, the worst is if the NFT people who bought Ethereum when it was a thousandth what it costs today are driving this entire discussion. And like, we end up with this this technology that's backed by the world's slowest MySQL database that won't scale (laughs) and means that only the really wealthy people who can afford to spend a thousand dollars per transaction are able to participate. Okay, that's capitalism gone very bad. I can see the that. worst, the worst, yeah, the worst. What's the best case? Hmm. Well, it's a world where you know 
user-generated content becomes more ubiquitous and people are able to participate in that the creative cycle and then extract value from it, you know, whether you go from your Etsy experience into more of a digital type of thing. Um, you know, we're seeing that in games now where you even have, you know, these, these play-to-earn mechanisms because we only have two things in the world, right? We have time, we have money. And if you have a lot of time and no money, now you have places where you can go and play games, correct, you know, create value, create items there, and then sell those on a marketplace. Um, Hold on. But, do you, like, sorry, mm-hmm. Sean. Do, do, you, do you actually believe, like, I, I have a hard time, as somebody who's made games now for a fair amount of time, yep. the idea mm-hmm. that I'm going to be able to make something that works in my Unreal Engine game, and I'm going to be able to transfer it over to, a, a, you know, a Unity game or some, no. you know, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying cross game. I'm just saying within game. Just look at the Axie Infinity phenomenon. Okay. How... Okay, you're gonna have to unpack that. So Axie Infinity is a game that was developed in in Southeast Asia, I believe, and um, it allows players to go on there and just play the game, and then you collect items, and then you can just sell those items on the marketplace for people who are playing the game and don't have the time to grind. Oh yeah. To get yeah. Okay. the uh, okay. to get the items. So you can trade that red hat or those blue those blue shoes or that type of thing, uh, and so you're actually creating value virtually in that but, in that the, example. I but I don't think it's going to be rampant. But I'm just saying the future for me is people being able to go in there in different places and extract value. I don't think anyone's going to drive the metaverse train. There is no train to drive. Again, it's just the arc of technology moving through time, um, and will p- people will participate in a lot of different places. You know, this kind of reminds me, this whole, can you make the long tail fatter and make it better for creators and independents that are out there? It reminds me of the beginning of Netflix when, well, not the beginning, but sort of the middle of of the Netflix um, evolution where everyone was like, oh my gosh, all these documentaries are getting put out, all these, you know independent producers and artists can finally like, they have a forum where they can create and an audience that they can connect to. And what does Netflix look like now? It looks like a standard studio. It's... It looks like the kissing booth too. <laughs> Was that a bad <laughs> movie? It looks like 50% of the market share from last year. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, I don't see it really bringing new, young, interesting directors to market. I don't see it being a forum for creatives to get in. I'm sure it's pretty hard to get anywhere close to their campus in LA. So do we really think the metaverse creates more opportunity for independence? Or do we think, or is this part of how it needs to be governed so that you don't let the major fangs are the large entities that are well capitalized control it definitely makes room for independence to do something whether it's the panacea right for shifting that balance of power i i don't think so um ultimately right if how however well resourced you are you can create better content so um doesn't mean you make the best content but you know at scale and um and volume really uh, you you know it's hard to beat the influence of a well-capitalized enterprise. I, I think that there's, I mean, I, the other the other side of this is that as more people start creating more kind of 3D content, the tools for that content creation will become democratized and you won't need a, a $600 copy of Maya to build 3D models. You know, you look at what's happened with Blender in the last 10 years mm-hmm. and it's gone from being a weird niche thing that serious creators couldn't use to being the preferred, in some cases, the preferred tool for um, for for 3D modelers. And um, I think that's only going to accelerate as more people get interested in that space. Uh, and it moves from, you know, in the same way that 
you know, the internet and the rise of, of, uh, of cheap technology drove podcasting, you know, drove, drove us from radio broadcasting to podcasting. Same thing happened with video 10 years later. And, and I think we'll see the same thing happen with 3D content creation as well. Do you guys worry that this is going to exacerbate the so-called digital divide in that if, if all these experiences come to life, but it's really relying on your ability to afford good gear at home, good connectivity, and you know, there's parts of the world that barely have internet access right now. And, and we've already acknowledged that you can be pinged on certain parts of the psychological and emotional and whatever other spectrum differently in a world like this, in an immersive world, versus in you know, other types of content experiences. I mean, is it possible that part of society evolves differently because of things in the metaverse than the part that can't actually access it because they can't afford to? Yes. <laughs> Sean has a definitive yes. yes. Oh, was that Sean? <laughs> yes, it will increase that divide. That's going to be the challenge of the future for all of us to see how we bring people along. I think, you know, Will makes a good point about 3D model creation and new tools that are available. You know, for the longest time, there was this dyad of Unity and Unreal. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when Unreal was a game, not an mm-hmm. engine. And it's come, <laughs> it's come a long way since then. And as more of those tools make themselves available, you know, the metaphor I use is, you know, when Kodak brought out the eight millimeter film camera for home use in the 1950s, there you had young Steven Spielberg, you know, doing stop action with his dinosaur dolls or something in his backyard and kind of brought open that whole next generation of, of filmmakers. We need the same kind of a, a leap forward, a great leap forward in game making. We've been making games virtually the same way for 40 years, just throwing more people at it. Yep. And um, until we can find a way to get more tools, more of these, you know, eight millimeter film cameras, as a metaphor, into the hands of creative people who just can't program or creative people who don't know how to do digital art and remove some of those barriers and let their creativity come out in an interactive format, I think then we'll see some some interesting progress um, in the creation of that kind of um, 3D world. The thing that worries me uh, about metaverse in general is that what looks like it could be a utopian metaverse for the wealthy Western countries is a dystopian, you know, a dystopian grind in the mm-hmm. developing economies where, you know, currencies are depressed and we see people, I mean, we already see this in games where there's, where there's access to marketplaces, right? Where mm-hmm. someone, someone in Southeast Asia will grind, uh, you know, skins on games that have steam marketplace enabled and then sell them for currency so that they can, you know, so that they can fund their gaming habits or pay the rent through various black market transactions, turn them into real currency. Or even Axie, right? Yep. Like that's yeah. a huge mm-hmm. part of Axie. So, so yeah, we- I, I don't think I've ever thought about a metaverse that, that doesn't look like what we would experience. Like I never, I'm glad we're having this discussion. It's never occurred to me what the global metaverse will look like. It's only occurred to me what the Western metaverse will look like and what that means for developed countries that are participating in the technology. So I, I'm not, you know, I don't have any thought, I guess, about it, but I think it's really interesting that you're bringing that up because I don't, I don't even think that as an industry, we talk about that um, because I've never had that conversation. I mean, we do have, you know, conversations about people in other parts of the world grinding and selling digital assets to be able to, you know, make some money. Um, and I always feel like, honestly, those those conversations, they get brought up a lot as a way to show, like, look, this is a, an opportunity for anybody. Even people in developing countries can take advantage. And it's like, 
it feels more like look at how people in developing countries are being taken advantage of because they have to be the ones who are grinding and trying to do the, the crap that like the, the people who are paying for don't want to do. So it's not equitable um, just because they have access to it and they're able to do parts of it. You, you're never really hearing about how much, you know, gamers in the Philippines are, are yeah. buying Axie NFTs from gamers in the United States. It's the opposite. I, I often think about those the pictures that you see of people in the in the digital content mines, either you know the the Twitter followers you can buy or the the places you can buy to juice your ad tech scores, where you see somebody sitting in front of fifty cell phones just going on each phone tapping one at a time over and over and over again all day long, and that doesn't sound fulfilling <laughs> or satisfying <No>. to me. <laughs> That's the divide. Putting on the romantic view for a minute, like the rose-colored glasses, assuming we could get the best of the best out of the metaverse, what do you think are the fundamental barriers to adoption? So we've talked about interoperability a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, we've talked about lack of governance. We've talked about the fact that there's a vacuum when it comes to privacy. I mean, whose responsibility is it? I'm not even sure. It's probably my own because nobody else is going to be appointed responsible for it. What else do you guys see as, as fundamentally in the way of the evolution of the metaverse? Well, I'll start with uh, the the adoption rate of VR headsets looks more like Laserdisc than it does the <laughs> the, the PC or or a mobile handset. I'll say Facebook. <laughs> you know, I I think they're the one that has the adoption rate that's actually going in the in the that's a happy curve. And I, I don't I don't I don't participate in Facebook anymore. I um I feel like six months ago I would have been much more concerned. It seems like people are kind of wising up and and their their fates are changing a little bit. But I I, I don't want Mark Zuckerberg in charge of my digital persona and 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 access to these networks in the future. Oh, we'll live a little. It won't hurt that much. Sean, what do you think? Uh, <laughs> look, 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 like Sean, you can get first in line for the Facebook neural implant, and I'll be right behind you. Let me know how it goes. Well, certainly, I think. You know, um, Facebook. I think the spread of the internet itself is is going to be you know self self limiting for some time. You know, people talk about the miracle of five G. I haven't quite experienced that yet myself here in San Francisco. So when's it going to come to Venezuela? I'm not really sure. Um, so there'll be things like that. Just the the infrastructure required to to support this burgeoning metaverse world is going to be a, a limiter on that. And again, I think to Will's point about Facebook, many of us are have begun to not trust a lot of things we see. Uh, online and, and via the internet. And um, if we have to continue to police ourselves, I think maybe Anjou or Stephanie are making a comment earlier about, you have to keep people out of your digital space. Like, oh, block this person, block that person. When, when it's all on the user to manage everything, the internet just floods the zone. And so every page you go to says, can we sell your personal information? Is it okay if we sell your personal information? Hey, go uh, manage your settings on this page for your personal information. At the end, you just go, I accept. I accept I can't go through your nine protocols on which cookies are on or which cookies are off. I think the majority of people just get, click I accept, like the EULA agreement. You never read it. You just say, yeah, I accept the terms of, of service. And I'm afraid that we will just get inundated that way as we move into the metaverse. And we won't be able to bring out the uh, sunflowers and unicorns, and it will just be more of what we're suffering today. Well, that's dark. Sorry. And I wonder how many EULAs <laughs> we have to accept in a metaverse that is decentralized. One EULA to right. join we walk them into all. A room, <laughs> we walk into a room with, well, you know, different plugins running or, right. Um, right. you know, ad servers attached. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. 
Wasn't this that conversation you were starting up yesterday about you and I are in the same virtual room, seeing completely yeah. different content, have completely different experiences? And is it the room? Is it us? Is it the algorithm? Like, who's shaping this experience? And can it really be shared? Well, and and the terrifying thing about view. The terrifying thing about VR is they know if you read the EULA because they can see what your <laughs> eyes are doing, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, you know, instead of having to just scroll all the way to the bottom and then the button lets you lets you click it, you have to actually read each line, hours and hours of EULA reading. But you can probably outsource that to somebody in the Philippines, so it'll work out. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> There's an app for that. Uh, there we go. Full circle. <laughs> all right. Well, speaking of full circle, I know we're kind of coming up on the hour. Oh, we already passed the hour. We are indeed. Um, did we miss anything, Justin, in our like meandering set of questions that we want to hit up? Or? Well, I guess I, I'm curious, and I, I, you know, when I ask, you know, how people are going to make money, how do we think people will actually make money in a way that they're not now? Obviously, um, what what are the new opportunities? Yeah, selling your data, selling compute. I mean, content creators obviously are, are phase one, right? Like, if you can make a really good Spider-Man skin for for VR chat, you can put it up on one of the one of the one of the um, model sharing sites and and sell it for a, a couple of bucks a pop and be sued by Disney. Well, Sony maybe I don't know. It's unclear. Andrew and I were talking yesterday about piracy, right? Piracy has been an issue in every digital marketplace. Uh, what does that look like in the metaverse and who enforces that and who should? What happens right now, people sell other people's art as mm. NFTs all the time. So, you know, just because you have a contract that says you own something digitally doesn't mean you actually own copyright for it. Oh, totally. Which is kind of crazy because I don't think a lot of people get that, by the way. If you want to know something people don't get, it's copyright. It's a it's an incredibly complicated topic that also virtually true. nobody who's uh, understands. Some filmmaker had done a, a sketch, you know, like Hodorowsky's Dune. Do you know what happened with it? Yeah, so he had about eight of these pitch books that he made back in the 70s to try to get people to sign up for his vision of Doom. Dune. And if you haven't seen Hodorowsky's Dune on Netflix or wherever it is, go see that. That's it's an amazing documentary. And then, so this group of uh, uh, investors bought a copy of the pitch book. It has a certain scarcity value because there's only like eight or nine of them in the world. So I understand that. And then they come out immediately. We're going to create NFTs off of this. We're going to license them. You know, these characters are going to do this and do that. And someone had to come in and go, just because you bought the book <laughs> doesn't mean you own the rights for derivative work from that. And you're right. Everyone's head went, huh? It seems elemental to those of us who work in intellectual property, but I guess it is hard for folks to get their heads around it. I mean, look, anybody who works has signed one of those contracts that says, you know, I'm, I'm assigning the work that I create as part of this job to the corporation that's paying my salary. But I don't think, I think people don't read those and maybe don't understand that you have to actually assign your, your, your work to someone else. Uh, or that you owning a thing doesn't mean you own the idea of the thing. It's it's yeah. Anyway, it's stunning. the The places where people fail with this over and over again are hilarious and and sad simultaneously. Yeah, just because you own a copy of The Godfather doesn't mean you can shoot that movie. <laughs> Look, I'm gonna do a shot for shot remake of The Godfather, Sean. It's coming out in 2024. <laughs> I'm gonna launch it on. Uh, it's gonna be an NFT, and uh, here's my contract number. Well, if you cast me as Luca Brazzi, I'll, I'll approve. Do the Sweden version. Do you remember that? But that's a, that that actually probably is fair use, right? That's a you're adding something to it. Like the, anyway, it's really complicated. I you'd have to talk to a lawyer to tell you if that's if that's okay or not. If, if crypto hadn't taken off, and instead we talked about other applications of blockchain, and and this craze around crypto just wasn't there behaviorally. Do you think? things around the metaverse or things around what you see, this craziness around NFTs would have evolved differently? Because I do feel like it's a frenzy. 
I mean, it was three months ago. It seems like it's slowed down pretty substantially in the last few months. We've seen last week uh, the guy who tried to auction off uh, Jack Dorsey's first tweet that he bought the NFT of. Uh, how much did he pay? How many millions did he pay for it? Does anyone remember? <laughs> 2.4, maybe? But he didn't pay millions. He Ethereum, which he probably bought for nothing right. five years ago and is yeah. tied up. You know, you know that, that that's that's always the the asterisk on these big transactions. So, but but the the other asterisk is he just tried to auction it off for charity, uh, for real money, and um, yeah, you know, the highest bid was like two hundred and thirty eight dollars, <laughs> which was below his, his below his minimum, so it did not transact. <laughs> but. His accountant told him he had a tax problem and gave him some possible solutions, <laughs> and here you are. I think the interesting thing that blockchain opens up, if you take the crypto and stuff out of it, is currently in today's market, we really can't sell, quote-unquote, pre-owned digital content. All those PlayStation games I've downloaded to my PlayStation, I can't resell them. Like, you used to be able to take your disc, go down to mm -hmm. GameStop, and they yep. give you six bucks for it, and then they resell it to somebody else. And I can't sell my iTunes library to anybody. Um, but if there were a, a technology available, and blockchain seems to be something that could do that, that would allow the original copyright holder of that digital asset to get a percentage when I sell it to Justin and get a, get a percentage when Justin sells it to Anju. Then I think, and that tracks against the blockchain, so you have permissions and ownership and all that scene. I think that opens up an interesting market for pre-owned digital properties. But aren't we, aren't we seeing some issues with that now with like tax regulation on NFTs? So how far back are you going to have to pay taxes on the royalties you're making as it's sold over and over again? Oh, that's interesting. I've never thought hmm. about that. There's a whole startup ecosystem around, hey, you need help with your taxes because of your <laughs> crypto and NFT stuff. Here here we go. The, the, the larger problem with the NFT in the crypto space is that, A, it's destroying the amount of energy spent is oh, yes. ridiculous yeah, yeah, for what it is. True. And the transaction volume is several orders of magnitude insufficient on any of the existing blockchains to compare with like not even the visa market but but what you know a single mysql server can run on on a raspberry pi right it's it's just not there and it's if we expect this to scale it's not going to scale and and we're going to see again the the solution is spend more money to get your transactions to pass while other people sit in the queue and and that that doesn't work for people who weren't early in on Ethereum or whatever your blockchain of choice is. This gets back to I feel like this is going to become like a very exclusive social club. You know, there's just a very small percentage of the population is even participating in this. I would say ghost town, but you know, <laughs> yeah. whatever. <laughs> so so let's let's talk though about the the energy usage for. I mean, if we look at this vision for a you know global scale persistent virtual world, I know. It doesn't necessarily have to look no like that. cycles. But like, how how do we account for the carbon footprint of something like that? Well, Elon Musk is going to put solar farms in space and beam the electricity back to Earth. So, so solved. You know, what would be deeply ironic? What would be deeply yeah. ironic is if the metaverse actually makes for a dystopian real life reality and not the metaverse is your escape <laughs> from your dystopian real life reality. It's not helping is the thing. And then we'll find out that we're all living in a simulation anyway. <laughs> as long as I find out I'm much taller and more attractive in, in the real world. Is anyone bullish about any part of this? Like, I'm kind of surprised. Didn't you, wasn't one of the words that you brought up like skeptical or unbalanced? <laughs> yeah. It was. It was. Scrutinizing. It was. Unbalanced. But I thought, you know, given 
given what we all focused on, I thought, you know, there's going to be one like use case that everybody's really excited about or some aspect. I mean, obviously we, we love technology and we like how it empowers, you know, users and experiences over time. But I just, I thought I would have heard a little more bullishness. I'm a little surprised. So, okay, I'll tell a story from the early BR days that I've, I've told. I think I've told both of you before, Andrew and Justin. But I, I so I started Foo, uh, and it was a virtual company. We My team was all around the world. And we worked together for a really long time before we needed to meet in person. Uh, I went, but every day we would do stand-ups in the, we built a virtual studio for recording 3D and 2D content. It doesn't matter. But we, we would we would spend time in this virtual space where we would wear whatever avatars we had built for our recordings. And when I met my lead programmer for the first time after working with him for almost a year, he got off the plane, came out of the airport. I immediately recognized him, even though I'd seen him in, on cameras maybe three times at that point. And I, I rec- my brain recognized his body language. So there's a, there's a, there's a cool thing there that is... You know, when you're in those shared spaces, if the models are capturing your movement right, you avoid the kind of awkwardness that we have on Zooms because we don't see people's hands where they're gesturing. We lose the shoulder movements that say, hey, I'm ready to talk or I have something to say or I'm not enjoying this conversation. And and that stuff does come across and it increases the fidelity of communication when we can't be together uh, physically. But it's it, it's a really hard sell and... You know, while while I think it's a net positive, I think getting my seventy five year old mom to put on a headset to to do a metaverse you know, Facebook meta call with my nine year old daughter probably isn't going to happen. You know, it's it's too much too much friction. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's what part of the metaverse are we talking about? Um, I am super excited about XR. It's why I chose to work in XR or to examine XR. Um, I think that there are, I think right now what's really exciting is there are multitudes of enterprise applications and use cases that are really transforming different um, different industries, whether it's manufacturing, training, healthcare. You know, you can do so much that we don't really talk about a lot because it's not consumer driven, because the consumer side is still pretty slow to start, you know, for all the reasons that we've talked about on this podcast so far. So, you know, there, there is sort of a behind the scenes that's really exciting. That's, that's showing new innovation and and different ways that the future can go using XR. I think also in gaming, um, there are really incredible games and experiences that are changing the way that we play and, uh, the way that we that we've ever thought about you know playing so those are things I'm excited about for sure I think the nature of the fact that my background is not I think you know 100% in crypto or nfts it's not something I'm unfamiliar with but it's not what I chose to do with my career and so I think that's partially why you're not hearing a lot of like excitement on that end not to say that there isn't value or potential to it, to the metaverse, but um, where I see, you know, the most exciting things are where I've thrown my my efforts in my personal life, and I think that a lot of that comes from what XR can do. And there's certainly a lot of things that XR can do that are a little bit spookier and and um, more nefarious, um, especially when you're connecting with other people socially. But there's also some really exciting things there too. I mean, I. I think there's a lot of evolution to come in that sense, but 
overall, I don't want to say that I'm bearish on the metaverse or particularly bearish on XR. I think we are all being very realistic uh, about the fact that we there's a lot we don't know and there are a lot of experiences we've had with technology and interconnectivity so far that haven't been the best and we haven't gotten better and so how will iterating on that with something newer and and more opaque make it even better for the metaverse so you know and I'm not trying to speak for anyone else here but that's sort of like where I'm coming from is is you know, there's a lot of unknowns and we haven't perfected it in its current state, you know, and so we have to be conscientious of how we're going to build on it. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. I mean, if you go back 30 years and picked up one of those early Motorola analog mobile phones that would stand upright and had an antenna sticking out of it. And when you talked it, your ear got hot because it was pushing microwaves through your brain to get to the analog tower. The brain. Um, <laughs> You can't look at that brick and automatically into it an iPhone. Because, oh, I see that technology. That turns into iPhone in, in 15 years. You can't. I, I, don't think, well, I don't think anyone else could. I mean, when the iPhone first came out, I just thought, wow, it's my iPod, but I can make a phone call. Interesting. Um, and that just sort of happened organically over time. So I'm very optimistic that the same thing will happen to Metaverse, whatever, in fact, that really is. And um, stand by and watch. And to on Stephanie's point, I think she's absolutely right. You see a lot of XR being used in, in training, in, in healthcare, right? Mm -hmm. You know, learning how to reset a bone without actually having to have a broken bone in front of you is, um, is, is, is an interesting experience for, for people in, in, those, in those industries. And I think a lot of innovation will be driven from that uh, before, you know, we all get taken over by the Minecraft version of VR. The thing I'm confident in is that the market, the, the, the users will determine what they mm -hmm. like and what they don't like. And if the people making the, the content and the tools and the protocols and and the you know the whole chain are thoughtful and generous and kind i guess is kind's not exactly the right thought but uh then we'll end up in a place where we have something that's useful and good and if if it isn't useful and good then the people won't use it and we'll stick with our 2d windows and our little tiny screens and and i mean that'll probably be fine too but do you feel that that's how it played out with social media um i mean tbd right yeah. ask me again in 10 years anjou yeah that's fair Sean, you brought up a really interesting point because um i think one of the things that i am most excited about is for content creators in this world of the metaverse um, i don't actually know how to say this word skeuomorphic does anyone know how to say that mm -hmm. pronounce it that's it is that is that how you pronounce yes. it okay it's got a lot yeah. more vowels than i think it needs but um <laughs> just this notion of from a design standpoint, we can rethink how everything should look and feel. And we don't have to be on this natural trajectory that, you know, the physical world has, you know, led us down. So I I'm really excited about what that means for creators. And, and even in the world of UGC, I think you can do so much so differently. Um, so I I'm excited for that. And how that then impacts the physical world, right? How we rethink what objects should look like and what their functionality is. Yeah, I think that's exciting. We, we, I don't think we will have the luxury of skipping over the skeuomorphic stage, right? There was a reason that they were called horseless carriages first before they were called, <laughs> you know, automobiles. Uh, uh, you know, people can kind of take one change at a time. Um, and it's the kind of the natural progression to show them like, this is that thing you like, but in a new way versus right. here's an entirely new way to to experience the world. I think they just don't see it. They just don't, they aren't able to picture themselves in it because um, as one of my former mentors used to say, people can't envision a penny. You have to show them what this new thing is and you have to bring them along. Um, yeah, that's I, right. I think, you know, when I look at all this, what I'm really more excited about is probably what most people would consider dull 
I'm looking forward to more of an augmented reality kind of metaverse where there's a contextual data layer that I can access in the real world, right? I want to know what, you know, walking down and trying to pick a restaurant or bar to go into, if I can get some data on that before I make that choice that is, you know, kind of contextual without having to necessarily go to my phone, right? I can do that now with my phone, but I think there's a opportunity to do something more uh, with, with that. But, you know, is that game changing? I don't know. It's just more convenient. I was just going to say, like for me, I, I have a hard time putting faces to names often. Like it's a it's a it's a deficiency in my character and and, and brain. Like I personally, it would be amazing if I walked into a room and everybody I knew had the tag <laughs> over their head. Right? Like, yep. oh, this is this is Justin. I know Justin. Uh, but is that an incredibly creepy thing? It feels creepy to me at the same like at the same time as I'm saying it's useful, it feels really creepy that my my technology would be able to label everyone that I've met before when I'm in a in a crowded like I'll ever be in a crowded room again. But you know, when I'm in that kind of situation, do you all think that's creepy or no? I don't think it's creepy. I mean so I can relate to this in the sense that many, many years ago, I could remember people's kids' names, and I would be pretty good at it. And so I would catch up, and I'd kind of remember vaguely what their ages were. And now, so many of my friends have kids, right? I've lost track. So I literally have to look up their contact and be like, oh, yeah, three kids, right? These are their names. And it's embarrassing when I do it, you know, before I get on the phone with them. But I, there's my brain just can't store all that and have it accessible immediately. So I completely get that. I would, I would love life stories, not just the tag, but give me the synopsis of life story. Oh, yeah, now I remember Exactly. I mean, transparency is often creepy, but it's also often necessary. And so I think like LinkedIn is kind of creepy. I think whenever people look at my profile and I have it, you know, I have it set so I can see who looks at it. It's like, why are they looking on my profile? But then on the other end, I look at people's (laughs) profiles all the time because I need to know something about them or I need to know something about someone else or who... Oh, we have a connection in common. But you probably disable their ability to see you, right? Of course I did. You obfuscate. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, and that asymmetry is really interesting because I do the same thing and I agree with you. It is creepy sometimes. And I'm like, why is that person <laughs> checking me out? Yeah, but but it's it's useful to have access to my LinkedIn for some people and vice versa. Yep, and yep. so whether or not it's creepy, you know, it's it's not it's not mutually exclusive, I guess. Sean, do you want tags floating over people's heads? Um, no. With their well, names and life I would like to have that, but then if the trade-off was that wherever I went, there's a tag over my head, I don't want to make that trade. So, yes, the asymmetry of it is, is appealing, but that seems hardly fair. But with all this talk of metaverse and cyberspace and all these terms we use and all the energy it's generating and you know NFTs and blockchain, whatever, if one thing I take from that that is encouraging to me is that people are becoming... Slowly, but people are becoming more facile with technology. And we're getting more people mm-hmm. interested yeah. um, in computer science. I mean, that's that's my pitch when I talk to to parents about, you know, should my kids be playing video games? Okay. Well, yes. Yes, they should. It's better than spending four hours in a video game where they're solving problems, they're learning patterns, they're, they're, they're learning to fail and get back up and try again. It's better than watching four hours of cartoons. So... Um, if this gets more people into tech and into programming, I think that's uh, an unmitigated good. I, I love that you say that. My dad, who is in his 80s, asked me for a VR headset yesterday. 
Awesome. (laughs) I mean, the man loves his iPhone, right? But he just generally only watches reruns of shows from 1970s. And like, I just couldn't believe it. He's like, oh yeah, I got introduced to this Quest thing. Can can you get me one? (laughs) I was like, yeah, absolutely. That is kind of, that is neat to see that. Sorry, Justin, you were going to say something. I think that's fine. I was just going to say, you know, Sean, and people are learning these skills. And if they decide to be a professional carjacker, they've had a lot of practice. Or GTA. That's what YouTube's for. But then there's also, you know, you 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 learn you learn how to build things in the, you know, Minecraft teaches kids how to build mm-hmm. things yep. in 3D space. Yeah. And yeah. they do it without having to buy thousands of dollars worth of Lego bricks, which is a huge advantage uh, as a parent of a 9-year-old who loves both Lego and Minecraft. The fact that I can just pay 30 bucks and and she has, you know, the space to share with her friends and they can build collaboratively is incredibly yep. powerful to Sean's point. We didn't have that when I was a kid and and you know, it's, it's, that's part of that path to better content creation tools that we talked about earlier. And, and, and that, you know, any, I, I, even with the downsides of social media, I think democratizing technology fundamentally is a powerfully good thing for everyone in the world. So I I agree with that. I also think if this kind of technology adoption encourages people to code, Mm -hmm. that's a good thing. I mean, if there's one skill I wish I had, I wish I could code. Never too late. Just because I think it would, uh, yeah, no, yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, I, I took classes a long time ago, but yeah, I mean, I just think you can you can unleash so many new things if you have the tools to do it. And I think coding is going to be one of those critical tools in the future. So if exposure to the metaverse gets people closer to technology than gets them wanting to build with tools, I, I think that is a really useful thing, especially for Generation iPad. Well, I think it'll be a, you know, that are swiping on magazines. I think the best future, though, is a no code future, right? So if you have ideas and creativity oh, that's true and you know you're backed by a, a nice kind of ai helping you uh, behind the scenes you know you, much like we talked about steven spielberg you know directing his friends and things in the backyard with his eight millimeter movie camera um giving someone the ability to just direct right uh the cast of their content uh computer generated content or describing the world they want built and it you know, appears for them. Uh, I think that's going to be fascinating. Sean, I was talking to Constantina Mm -hmm. uh, earlier this week and she was telling me one of her groups of users. So she's, she's a co-founder. She's a founder of a company that converts 2d art into 3d objects um, that you can then import into games and other environments. And she was saying that children are one of her categories of users that they just draw these things and they import them into different digital Mm. worlds. Yep. Gotta start them young. I think that's that's interesting though. That's yes. a good thing. Just make make them sign over their IP <laughs> while they're young. <laughs> Look, we're, we're not building Roblox here, Justin. <laughs> that was my dystopian uh, future calling again. So, you guys have any parting thoughts? Please don't let Facebook be in charge of this. <laughs> I, you know. I- it's funny how many people say that, and I got to say that the people that work at FRL, or what historically was FRL, super talented. I, I do wonder if at some point the government actually does step in and say, you got to spin off your social media assets if you really want to be doing anything in the metaverse because it's just too much. But I, I can understand the tension there. Let's not count on the government to solve for this. Yeah. I mean, it was it was calculated enough when, when Facebook said to Congress, you want us to, to change our rules? Well, write some legislation. We'll be right here to pick it up and do whatever you say, knowing full well that no legislation will ever get written. And I hate to be this kind of a cynic, but I think that whole 47 point, is it 47.5% toll? I think that's basically set up so it's a future concession that they can offer to get regulators off Mm -hmm. their back. So, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. You can't count on the government to protect us, but all right, don't let Facebook. Would you trust NVIDIA, Will? Would that be better? 
I, look, I don't trust any trillion dollar corporations. It's a general rule of thumb. It's worked out well for me so far. <laughs> Stephanie? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I, I'm not sure. I, I feel like there's um, a lot to be unsure about, and it's not a popular thing to say I don't know. So I try to limit it, but I think in this in this particular case, um, I really don't know. I really want the metaverse to be inclusive and safe and economically viable for creators and all of those sorts of things. Um, I think centralization, you know, as we're kind of talking about, is uh, a concern for sure. But you know, there there is a a balance that needs to be struck. And I, I don't know where that balance lies. So I think like having these conversations is really helpful because it brings to light a lot of problems. I think we don't always think about. Um, but I also think it's really important to, for us to examine what's not working in web two and um, try to fix some of those things before we start porting new innovation on them. Agreed. Stephanie, are you going to come back yeah. after the Davos announcement and talk all about that? <laughs> sure. Can you take us to Davos with you? <laughs> Just do the show from there. Uh, I mean, I I think I have two bags uh, limit. So if one of you can fit in one of them, <laughs> you're more than welcome. Well, I'll be interested to find out in 10 years time, what have we rebranded the metaverse as? Again, it began as the information superhighway and moved through cyberspace and cyberpunk and cyber this and that. And now it's metaverse. In 10 years, I wonder what we're going to be calling it. Work. The internet. <laughs> eh? Ye olde internet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, uh, I can say that, you know, as terrifying as some of the potential outcomes might be, I'm looking forward to playing with all the toys that are the kind of natural outgrowth of trying to get there. Amen. <laughs> Agreed. I'm excited to say that I think in 10 years, whatever this set of things evolves to be, we really don't have any idea right now what that's going to look like. So I think we will be genuinely surprised. I'm going to come back to this like it's a time capsule. I mean, th that's the exciting thing about this. It's the same as with the early days of VR is that the language of this medium is like the medium is undefined. So the language of the medium is undefined. The thing that we do know right now is that, you know, Everything that we do in games and everything in, in 2D games, you know, games that run on your Xbox or PlayStation or whatever is based on, for the most part, film at conventions. So, you know, we, we get people to look in the right places. We can move the camera and, and show them the thing we want to show them in VR and AR and XR, MR, whatever R you want to call it. Those conventions don't work, and we have to figure out how to how to tell stories and how to interact with people. And the the language of user interactions and and user experience is completely different. It's really that that part's really exciting and fun. Sounds like life. All right, guys. Um, do you guys have any parting thoughts or any words of wisdom or cautionary tales you need to or share? Or anything you want to plug professionally while we're here? Yes, that too. Well, I encourage anyone listening who has an interest in um, expanding the world of um, engineers and developers to look at a couple of nonprofits that I sit on the board of. One's called Girls Make Games, run by the um, inspiring Layla Shabir and teaching coding skills to girls between the ages of 9 and 16 on an annual basis. They do boot camps in the summer. It's really exciting to see young people working in Unity and like writing macros when you're 10 years old. It blows my mind to watch them do it. 
And the other group is women who code. It's about a uh, membership of, I guess, about 260,000 women around the world who are in technology and engineering coming together to help each other create networks and create opportunities uh, for themselves around the world. So I think these are two ways we can get a more diverse palette of people in the world of engineering, particularly in gaming. And um, I'm doing everything I can to, to move those two platforms forward. So there's my plug. And hopefully that addresses some of the concerns Stephanie raises over time around being more inclusive, more understanding. Absolutely. Will, what do you got? Well, if you enjoyed hearing me ramble, you can hear that uh, on a weekly basis at techpod.content.town, or uh, we just launched a new podcast called The FOSPod about free and open source software, uh, where we talk to the people. I don't know if you remember the old SKCD about, uh, it's about image magic, but it's the one software dependency that every piece of you know software that's used on the internet uses. We find the people who make those pieces of software and talk to them. So we did an episode with Jim Bailey of the OBS project, which you may have heard of. Um, we've talked to a bunch of fascinating open source, uh, open source developers, including uh, folks who work on AR, uh, open AR uh, platforms like uh, like uh, Project Northstar, um, and you can find that at fospod.content.town. And Stephanie, in addition to the lottery you're running for whoever can fit in your bag, <laughs> anything you want to plug? Well, I have uh, these two friends, Will and Sean, that are doing some really <laughs> interesting things. Um, you should check that out. Um, otherwise, I uh, I got well, you nothing. can't tell us. You'd have to kill us. Exactly. We'll we'll talk another day in the future and uh, and talk more. Well, we're excited that you're coming over to the West Coast, and I cannot wait to hear all about what you're doing at World Economic Forum. So so thanks for coming on now and like you know getting the folks that you work with to to allow you to come here to to scoop a little bit of it. It was good. Yeah, I know it was a, it was a fun conversation. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everybody. Super fun. We got to do this live. Maybe not in Will's kitchen, but somewhere where there is a kitchen. <laughs> I have a really small kitchen on you. <laughs> yeah, but you have so many I great the Bay toys. Area. And, and you're the only person I know that has all those molecular gastronomy toys. So we're going to have to, we're going to have to do something. The sometime. Presidio is beautiful this time of year. I can bring the liquid nitrogen anywhere. <laughs> well, again, thank you, everybody. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Transpose. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe or leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, don't forget to switch it up a little.